Well, if you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it to page 448 if you are using the Pew Bible there. And if you're just joining us, this is week two of our summer series in the Psalms. And one of the questions we're asking, or at least pursuing, is how the Psalms uh, encourage us to have our hearts open to God. Of course, we'll be asking other questions about the Psalms as we go along. Last week we were in Psalm 1, um, and this week we're in Psalm 2. And and no, we're not going through all 150. So we'll start breaking those up after this. But we felt like these were two important ones from the get-go to begin uh, discussing So with that, let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word found in the book of Psalms chapter 2. Verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you again and ask for a miracle, and by miracle that you would soften hardened hearts towards you and your word, that you would, through your spirit, open our eyes and ears so that we might see things and hear things otherwise we could not. And would you do that for your glory alone? We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Uh, Sort of off record, um, I just want to take a second just to say that July 1st will be uh, our year anniversary being here, which seems in some ways like it's gone like that, but in other ways, like we've been here kind of forever. Um, maybe some of you don't say that at this point. But I uh, just want to say thank you from our family. This has been an incredible transition for us. It's been a great place for us to be. And y'all have been beyond uh, just loving and caring for us. And so uh, we'll actually be heading out of town for work and uh, some things until after July. But I wanted just to say thank you to the church for the way that you have loved us this year And uh, we couldn't imagine being in a better place. Now, back to Psalm 2, okay? Um, I'll start with a question here. Uh, What does it mean to sing something? I don't know if you've ever asked that question or have had that question asked to you, especially in light of the age that we live in today with media as it is, uh, having an iPod, for example, and being able to listen to whatever it is you want to listen to. Um, but what does it mean to sing something? You know, what does it mean to stand in the ballpark and to stand and sing your national anthem before the game? We just got done singing, and we sing every single Sunday, don't we? Why do we do that? What does it mean to sing nothing but the blood of Jesus? 
Well, one of the things that it means to sing things is that you are actually saying that you agree with this. At least this is, this is what the ancients thought about singing. It wasn't just sort of this pastime necessarily where we would, you know, just kind of effortlessly uh, go through hooks and um, just kind of be taken away and not really think about what we're doing. Um, but that, that by singing, we were actually agreeing with and owning something, that with which we are singing. And it's something that the church has always recognized as being a central part of our worship because singing as a part of worship is formative. That means that it shapes us and it forms us, which means, and this is a hard question, that what we sing matters. Now, I'm not, it's not at all telling you to get rid of all of your secular albums. This is not what this is about. Uh, what is it about is to understand of what is actually happening to us as we're driving down the car, belting out a few tunes on our way to work, or maybe more relevant to our place and time today, what does it mean to actually sing our hymn, the hymns that we sing? What does it mean to think about that in relationship to the Psalms as well? The Psalms have been coined the hymn book of the Bible this is something that, that, that Israel had and would sing at times. And it was something that they thought of uh, as being formative to who they are and who God wanted them to be. And one of the things that it meant for them to sing these psalms was that it would begin to shape them and shape the way that they think about God and the way that they think about life amidst all, this, all of life's circumstances. And so one of the questions I'm going to be asking every single time I'm up here for this summer is, what does it mean to sing this psalm? And so for this morning, we come to a rather difficult one, but perhaps a favorite in Psalm 2. It's a royal messianic psalm, which means that it has this really interesting phraseology in there talking about a future anointed one, which we now understand as Jesus. But this is why this psalm bothers me and why I hope maybe this is your question too, the difficulty this morning of trying to ask the question of what it means to sing this psalm is to actually get into the idea that what this psalm asks of us is to live in another world that doesn't seem to be the world we're living in today. That's what this psalm is asking of you. And if I'm honest with myself as I've been thinking about this, I love to think about what it means, but I also have a ch- the, the challenge especially as we just pray for the concerns of the community, even some things outside of our community, how I'm to believe that the things that the psalm is talking about are really true, given what I see on a daily basis. And I imagine that that is true for me, that is difficult for me, it might be difficult for you as well. But my hope this morning as we look into this psalm is that we would begin, maybe with new eyes, maybe, maybe afresh, sing this song come Monday, uh, anew, that we'd be reminded of its truth, and more importantly, of the reality that we are drawn into of God's world and reality, because, because His Son, Jesus Christ, reigns, reigns today over all of creation. There are really three things here in this psalm that breaks up really nicely. Um, I'm not forcing the three thing here at all. But three things we're going to look at as the psalm unfolds, and that is the rebellion that takes place in verses 1 to 3. Then we're going to look at God's response in verses 4 to 9. And then we're going to look at our refuge in verses 10 to 12. 
So let's jump right in there. Um, let's look at that first one, a rebellion. In the first three verses, the narrator gives voice to the rebellious rulers of earth. Conflict, which is essential in all drama or any story, is what we are met with here in this very first verse, saying, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? It is a picture of rebellion. It is a picture of turmoil on earth. But who, who is this rebellion focused towards? Is it some evil dictator that is abusing his people and his privileges? Is it some president of a country who is using his power for personal gain? No. This rebellion is directed towards God's anointed, as we see there in verse 2. And who would this be? Well... At the time that this was written, perhaps around 950 B.C., no one knew specifically. See, actually, before this, in Genesis 3.15, we are introduced to this messianic hope uh, that is this person who will put things to right by crushing the head of the serpent. And by the time, though, that we arrive into the Psalms, we get more of the story and that this messianic hope is focused then on a descendant of David. That would be King David, located in the Old Testament. He would be someone who would come from David's line, this anointed, and God would set him up as ruler over his people. And he would bring peace through his rule. And for, so for years, whether it was the high times of King David's rule or perhaps the low, low times of captivity in Babylon, this song was sung in light to the future. And light to the one day, someday, when God's anointed would take his rightful chair, his crown, and govern his people. Now, jumping ahead to the New Testament and where we live today, we know that the apostles uh, recognized Psalm 2 from Acts 4 and 13. They recognized Psalm 2 as finding its fulfillment in Jesus Christ at his resurrection. In fact, all throughout the New Testament, we hear echoes of Psalm 2 in reference to Jesus. First, in Matthew 28, which we know of as the Great Commission, where all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. That is in reference to Psalm 2. Later in Revelation, we hear that Jesus is referred to as the ruler of all kings of this earth. That is, again, reference to Psalm 2. And so God's anointed in Psalm 2 turns out to be Jesus. Surprise, surprise. Didn't mean to ruin that, but there it is. And it's him, then, that this rebellion in verses 1 to 3 are directed towards. It's a revolt, if you will, against God himself. Charles Spurgeon, the old Baptist minister, had this to say about Psalm 2. He said, we have, in these first three verses... A description of the hatred of human nature against the Christ of God. A description of the hatred of human nature. See, what the church has believed and what the scriptures have always attested to is that this rebellion that we're reading about in the opening verses isn't some isolated rebellion. is isn't some isolated revolt in the ancient Near East where some king or king's They were maybe angry or upset at a king that Israel had. This rebellion, it isn't even localized. It's not even contained in some or a few bad people here or there. Or maybe a few governments today. No, this rebellion in Psalm 2 
is an expression of the greater rebellion of the human heart against God himself. It is a picture of what is universally true about all of us. That our hearts come into this world alienated and at odds with its creator. They are actually turned against him. And this doesn't necessarily mean angry and antagonistic. It oftentimes simply shows itself in the way that we are indifferent towards God. The way that we shrug him off in favor for living life how we want to. Authority, maybe, is the best word that comes to mind. That we desire to live under our own authority from birth as opposed to anybody else's. Either way, what the psalm assumes is that there is and probably always will be a group or mass of people who want nothing to do with God himself. This is, for example, why ministry, all kinds of ministry, wherever it is, is extremely difficult As one of my close friends who's a pastor comments on this very text, he says, this is what makes ministry so hard. Because not only is ministry done in a context that is typically unfriendly, it is also done to the very people who do not want it. Those in rebellion against God and his anointed. And we'll actually see later, though, how Psalm 2 gives us the hope and the courage to do ministry. But for now, we need to recognize the problem that we face here, given in verses 1 to 3, that the psalm speaks to all of us as desiring our own authority over God's. And that our only hope in this life is for us to somehow find peace with this anointed. Is to somehow find ourselves engrafted in and put under his authority. Maybe adopted comes to mind. Maybe, maybe that's what we need. We need somehow to come into favor with this anointed to become a part of what he is doing, that somehow there might be peace between us and God. Well, this is the opening scene, a rebellion nonetheless. Next, we need to see, we see God's response to this rebellion, which really composes most of the psalm itself. And this gets to the second point. So what is God's response? And this is probably the favorite part of the psalm for me. Um, what is his initial response to this rebellion? Notice first that in verses 4 to 6, we see that God is not alarmed about this. We see that he is not surprised. In fact, in verse 4, the narrator, narrator tells us, He who sits in the heavens laughs, is what the language says. He laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Well, what is God doing? What he's doing is he's actually mocking, in, in a way, this rebellion. He's laughing at those who would think that they could somehow usurp their authority over God himself. That the creation could somehow take down its creator. Um, I have an older brother, and uh, being, well, now having four daughters, but coming from a place where it was just brothers, brothers like to wrestle, uh, like to get physical, and girls not so much. But um, when I was young, about 10 years old, uh, you know, we would do that quite a bit, and we had this babysitter. Well, we called him a house, he house sat, he didn't babysit. He came in, he watched the house, and we were there. And uh, we would have a, a blast just kind of pushing the coffee table out of the way. And he would actually get down on his knees. And we would just kind of go at it for a little bit, like pretty good, you know, just trying to wrestle, take down, pin. And, uh, and it was so much fun. And, and, and if I'm really honest with myself, as a 10-year-old, I really thought I could take him down. I thought there would be someday he'd come over and I would really get him, get him in a chokehold or something like that. 
And, uh, but one thing that you, you probably need to know about our house sitter, um, his name was David, was that he was a black belt in karate. And uh, to a 10-year-old, that doesn't mean anything because I'm that plus infinity, right? <laughs> um, but David, in his kindness, would just sort of just let, you know, let me kind of uh, sort of act like I'm winning. And then he had this, he, like, he knew all the pressure points. Some of you all who do karate know what I'm talking about. And in, in less than a second, he would have like this point on my wrist and I'm still trying to find it. I can't find it. And he, I would be in so much pain. I'd be on my back in about a second and it would be over. It'd be it. Now I'd ask him to do it again because I'd really want to try to figure it out so I could use it on my brother. But that's another story from the other day. Never was able to do that. I always kind of looked like a fool trying to like grab his wrist. And he's like, what are you doing? And he just kind of hit me with the other hand. That's just a... It was ridiculous, to say the least, to put it that way. Why do I say this? When the psalmist says that the Lord is laughing, that he sits and he laughs, what the psalmist is saying is that it's pointing out the ridiculousness of the rebellion. It's pointing out the ridiculousness of those who think that they can take him down. Much so how ridiculous it was that a 10-year-old would even have a chance against a black belt in karate. And for some of us here this morning, this is where we need to camp out. Right here, verse 4. Because for some of us, the opposition that we experience in life seems real. And it really does frighten us. Some of us aren't really sure what we can and can't talk about at work as Christians for fear of being fired. For many in other parts of the world, martyrdom is almost certain on any given day of the week. So for many, this rebellion that we just got done talking about, this opposition against God's anointed, is very real and we aren't sure what to make of it. In fact, you might even say that this is where the apostles find themselves or found themselves in Acts chapter 4 as the church is beginning to grow After the Holy Spirit has been let loose. See, Peter and John, if I could recap Acts 4 for you. Peter and John had just been arrested for preaching what? The gospel of Jesus. And they were were supposed to go to jail, but they 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 weren't sent to jail. They were actually given, they were let off the hook. But if you recall why, what was the, what were the terms of that agreement? The terms were this, that they were to never speak in the name of Jesus again. That's a tough place to be. As an apostle, I mean, you've already abandoned your king. Um, Now you're dealing with, okay, are we going to do this? I mean, we saw what they did to Jesus. Are we going to do this? I loved reading some of the commentary from James Montgomery Boyce on Psalm 2, who quoted several examples over the years where rulers have claimed to even put an end to Christianity, right? In one, he quotes the emperor Diocletian, a great foe of Christianity, who says this in the late, or excuse me, who in the late third and fourth century struck a medal or coin, which bore the inscription, the name of Christianity being extinguished. So we're not supposed to be here right now, according to Diocletian. Uh, Later, he went on and he uh, took the Roman Empire into Rome or into Spain, excuse me, and he erected a few monuments there. But one of them read this. First, he's got to put his name, which is uh, Diocletian, Jovian, Maximum, Herculeus, Caesar, Augusti. And uh, then he says this. He says, for having everywhere abolished the superstition of Christ and for having extended the worship of the gods. 
See, that's a tough place to be. Can you even imagine living during this time when that was your ruler? What would you be thinking this morning? And, and, and maybe more specific to our psalm, would, would this psalm too actually even speak to you at this point? And see, that's where some of us are this morning. We are paralyzed by fear. And it may not be the fear of martyrdom or of rulers of kings coming in to take you out, but the normal everyday fear of life, of what is going to happen to me? What, what is going to happen to my kids? What's going to happen to my family if I don't find a job? If I don't get into this college, what now? And the list goes on. Those types of fears. Does Psalm 2 actually speak into them this morning for you? And before you answer that, I'm just going to answer I think it does. I think it does. In the same way that history would tell us, though Diocletian didn't abolish Christianity, but actually we find out that it was growing at, at an excessive rate due to his very own persecution. In the same way that we know that, as bad as it might get for you this morning, that is not the end of the story. As bad as it might get for those fears, those fears do not win out, even if we are experiencing them immediately right now. And this is why for those whose lives right now are so dominated by the questions that this life presents us, you've got to camp out right here in verse 4. You've got to allow yourself... To take in this reality. This is why I said at the beginning this psalm is challenging. Because you're being asked to live in a different world that is not the one that you're necessarily experiencing right now. That he who sits in the heavens laughs. Well, why is God laughing to continue? In verse 6 we read that God is laughing because he has already set His king on his holy hill, according to Psalm 2. In other words, God's anointed reigns. Jesus and his resurrection reigns. And what that might mean for you this morning is just a moment of being able to catch your breath, of being able to lift your head up from all of the seduction of this world and to begin to know that this is not the end. That Jesus, God's anointed, does reign. And that he is sovereign over all things. I think this is one of the wonderful things that the Psalms do for us. And what we mean by having hearts open to God. That they offer us pictures, glimpses into who God is and what he is doing. When our hearts are anything but open to him. They actually bring us into his world. Into his reality. And isn't that what worship is all about in the first place? It's almost as if the psalms, in a way, when we have nothing left to sing, it's almost as if they begin to sing for us. And I would say verse 4 is one of those verses for me that is singing for me often. Where it doesn't seem like God is in control. Where it doesn't seem like he has things. Where it doesn't seem like he is surprised. That he is somehow caught off guard by what is happening. He is reigning, and he is not surprised, nor is he worried. 
And he has set his anointed as king on his hill. And nothing, according to this psalm, will change that. This is our second point, God's response. Well, how does this all end? Where can refuge be found? And this gets to the last point here, our refuge. What we see in the rest of this psalm is that there is no refuge from the king, from God's anointed. There's no refuge from him except refuge in him. Let me say it one more time. There is no refuge. There is no uh, flee to safety. There's no other place to be to escape his wrath and fury than in him. Look with me at verses 7 to 9. Many scholars and commentaries recognize the language of of, of this psalm as one of a coronation ceremony. And what is that? Well, a coronation ceremony is a crowning of a sovereign. We don't too much deal with this because we're a democracy. It's supposed to be. We don't have kings and queens, right? Um, So that's that's what a coronation day is. It's an anointing of the anointed. And there are a lot of things going on here in these verses as you look at them, but I, and I wish we had more time to unpack them. We don't. But let me just point out one for us here for this point. That after a title is given, in this case, verse 7, that the anointed is referred to as God's son, we see that, we see that this king receives an inheritance by virtue of somehow now being related or adopted to this God. He's now related to him. And what is that inheritance? Verse 8 says it's all the nations. All the nations have come under his authority. The whole earth has been given to him as a possession. It's his. And then in verse 9 we see that that he will dash them to pieces, which means that he will subdue them. And what does this mean? One pastor puts it this way. It means that this king will conquer the world because the world is now his by right. That this king will conquer the world because the world is now his by right. And by the time we get to verse 12, we see that there appears to be some type of ultimatum here given to the rebellion. That is, that they can carry on as they, as they have been. That they can continue to try to usurp God's authority, the one that he has put on his hill. They can continue to go that route. They can continue to be the 10-year-old thinking they can take down the person with the black belt. Or, as you see, they can kiss the son. Which, for them, was an act or a gesture of submission to his authority. There is no other option here. And this is one of the reasons why this psalm sits right here at the gate, right? Some people actually think it belongs there to Psalm 1. But there is no other option. And that according to Psalm 2, there is no refuge from the king except refuge in the king. And it's why the wicked will not stand in the judgment that we read last week. But the righteous will. But who? Who are we finding our refuge in? And the the answer to that is only Jesus. Who is the faithful witness, right? Who is the firstborn of the dead? Who is the ruler of all kings of this earth, that is the one in whom our refuge is found. That is the only place to go, according to Psalm 2. So what does this mean for us today? Well, for the world to now be Jesus's by right, and this is where this is a little challenging, we've got to kind of come into present day, but for the world to now be Jesus's by right means that it is far worse to fear men than it is to fear Jesus himself. 
And this is exactly how the apostles use Psalm 2 and Acts 4. And this is exactly what they thought, having been given this almost very same ultimatum by a Roman authority to never speak in the name of Jesus again. The apostles considered what this psalm now might mean in light of Jesus' own resurrection. That is, Jesus, if Jesus was truly God's anointed and if by his resurrection he now sits and he reigns, not only is it worse to fear these Roman authorities over Jesus, but it would be foolish to do so. And you want to know what allowed them and begin to give them the courage to go in, all of them losing their lives in the process, was because of this psalm. They actually believed it was true. Their allegiance was with him. This is where the apostles found their courage to do ministry. This is where you will find the courage to do ministry. To know that Psalm 2 is real. That it has happened. And that God sits on his throne and he reigns. And what this meant for the apostles is that they had to begin thinking not of this world, but of the world to come. And this gets, this gets very difficult for us. I think this moves into a further application that the church today has lost sight of. If we are not thinking of the world to come, if we are not thinking of the world that our faith has attached us to, this new earth promised in Revelation, the world to come that has been given to Jesus, where he will reign forever. If we are not thinking about this world every day while we live in this world today, then the hope of the gospel offers that it offers will never empower its church to be effective. In fact, the word hope, which oftentimes today causes our eyes to glaze over, will seem like nothing more than something that a five-year-old still believes in. That is, if we continue to live life only glimpsing what is in front of us and not glimpsing what is promised to us in the world to come where Jesus will come back for his people and the culmination of his reign will be finished, will be complete. I've heard the statement many times and in many sermons, and maybe you have too, but it's true that those in the church who did the most in this world were thinking about the next one. And just for the record, that doesn't mean someplace way out there in the ether. That means this place here. That God is coming to renew his creation. But for one example, William Wilberforce, who fought to abolish the slave trade in Europe, saw his faith in God as having a dramatic consequence for people's lives here and now. And as a member of parliament, he's quoted as saying, I would suggest that faith is everyone's business. The advance or decline of faith is so intimately connected to the welfare of a society that it should be of particular interest to anybody, especially politicians. In other words, faith is not a private matter for William. For Wilberforce, it was the simple matter of wondering, will there be slaves in God's new economy? Will there be uh, the owning of human beings. Is that indicative of God's character? And the answer is no. So for him, that is exactly what I make my life about today. See, in that way, he is living with a glimpse of what is to come, not just where he is today. We prayed it earlier, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is a prayer that is asking for the way that things are to find its fulfillment and finally get to be the way that they, things are here now, the way that they are in heaven, the way that they are uh, under God's rule there, that they would find its fruition here too. You prayed for that. And what this psalm is encouraging us to do today is to actually live with that in mind every day, that that is a reality that's going to happen. 
if we're not thinking of the world to come every day while we live in this world, then the hope of the gospel offers will never change us. And it's my conviction that it's why so many today, especially in Western evangelical circles, are so bored with Jesus. And maybe it's not Jesus. Maybe it's the church. Can't really figure it out. But I'm just going to go do something else. Instead, what will begin to define them and the rest of the church is the very fear that the gospel has set us free from and the love of Jesus. You might say this is what made the apostles the apostles. Yes, they were given special gifts for that time period. And they were called by the bodily resurrected Jesus. Um, But after that, they lived life with their minds caught up, caught up in a resurrected Jesus. In a place where he has authority over everyone. They lived lives caught up in the place they were going or in the place that Jesus was coming back to. And it changed everything. Now notice that to live like that where Jesus has all authority is not an invitation to hold on to your life. Rather, it is an invitation to lay it down. The way that he did for us. When we were part of the rebellion. So what does Monday morning look like for you if you were to get caught up with a glimpse of God's eternal kingship? Another way to ask that question is, what does it mean for us to leave these doors singing Psalm 2? One suggestion, though there are many, and I'd love to hear this throughout the week, is that it would mean for us What it would mean for us to sing this psalm today is to have hope in the midst of so much uncertainty and confusion. Knowing our God reigns. And see, hope in the scriptures is defined completely different than the way that we really think about it. Hope in the scriptures is just unseen certainty. That's the way they viewed it. It wasn't some sort of blind faith, some kind of pie in the sky, maybe one day. It was unseen certainty for them. And I heard a sermon recently quote the early church philosopher Tertullian that has this wonderful definition of hope that I want to give to you. It says, hope is patience with the lamplit. Hope is patience with the lamplit. No matter how dark it gets, even when you can't even see the end or what is around you, or even how this life finishes for you, or even, it may not even make sense at times. We what? We wait for it with patience. This is how this singing begins to shape us. This is how God's intention of trying to bring us into his world and reality. This is how he has, has designed it, how he, how he has chosen to shape his people. That we would sing this, that we would own this, and that we would in turn hope that we would wait for that in patience regardless of what is going on around us. Why? For he who sits in the heavens laughs. For he has set his king on Zion, his holy hill. And what is it that we are hopeful for, Christians? We are hopeful for that king's return. That one day, someday, when he does finally come back to be with his people, as Revelation points out, where there are no more tears, and where God finally does dwell with his people as he did before in the garden. That is where we are going. In other words, in other words, hopeful that Jesus truly is who he says that he is. And friends, that is a song that I can sing. That is a story that I want to belong to. 
In closing, I, I love what N.T. Wright says here, uh, who's an author scholar, um, about this wonderful narrative, this wonderful story of Christianity that finds all of its culmination in Jesus and his reign and his authority and everything. He says, Whatever Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were doing in writing the final sections of their books referring to the Gospels, they were not telling the story of Jesus' resurrection as a happy ending. They were telling it as a startling new beginning. Maybe the biggest struggle today that you are experiencing or that in general the church is experiencing is that we are so caught up looking in, in our lives for some happy ending. That we are too caught up looking for a way for our circumstances to be resolved. Our own personal happiness maybe has been elevated above God's purposes. That we've been so caught up with that that we forget the new story that we are already a part of and promised because of Jesus Christ. Would Psalm 2 refresh us of this reality as we head into the week ahead? And would we sing it as the truth that it is, friends, that Jesus Christ this very day reigns? Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Psalm 2, and we could spend an eternity on it and still not plummets depths and still not see all that is there. But for now, we thank you for the glimpses that you have given us of your plans and your purposes. Lord, that you are not surprised at what you see. You are not surprised at the way things are turning out in some people's lives and in this world and at different seasons of life. Yes, you care about those and you mourn for those and you've demonstrated that in offering your son to die to fix those things. And would we now get on board, so to speak, with that reality as the church. That is the vocation that you have equipped us, at, equipped us for as your church, to live in light of that reality, that Jesus reigns, and nothing, nothing will change that. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.